I feel compelled to give you one of those so-called trigger warnings here. So here goes. The following podcast contains explicit language. Having said that, I also want to offer you some reassurance. So I've prepared something. Take the word priapic. Okay, now remove the suffix. Now take the ultimate and the pre-antipenultimate consonants and add together their corresponding numbers in the 26 letters in the English alphabet. Go ahead. I'll give you a moment. You got it? Okay, great. Now, keep that number in your head and take the other letter in the alphabet that, like the ultimate consonant in our original word, represents a voiceless velar stop. You can look that up. Okay, you know the one I mean? Okay, so take the corresponding alphabetical number for that letter and use it as a subtrahend. And the difference of our preceding operation as a minuend. Now subtract. Take your difference and find the corresponding alphabetical letter for that number. Okay, now place that letter into the second position and drop the two consonants we used to find it. Now you should be left with a word that was the name for divisions of the populace in ancient Rome, or at least in the Republic. It's also the word for an assembly of clerical officials in the Catholic Church. So to do their job, those guys, the clerical officials, would have to consult the section of the Bible containing four books each telling variations of the story of the central historical figure of the church. Okay, so take the two-letter abbreviation for that section of the Bible and place them in the third and fourth positions respectively. Now, drop the remaining three letters and you should, if everything has gone right, have a word that is a homophone for the first syllable of a word meaning an independent or occupied sovereign state. So, are we on the same page here? I would never say that word. It's naughty. Right. Gender and race don't matter. 25 to 40 years old. She's either in a relationship or maybe a newlywed or has just gone through a breakup. She's had some up and downs on the job, some setbacks. She's not a navel gazer, but she thinks a lot. And she tends to project her personal experiences onto a more philosophical canvas. Hmm. Sounds pretty pretentious. Yeah, so that's my target person. That's my, my avatar. Your avatar? What, like a big, tall, blue alien? No. Your avatar is what you get when you amalgamate the characteristics of your average listener into an imaginary individual. And it doesn't matter if this amalgam is male or female. Right. So how do you imagine this thing? Like a hermaphrodite? Like a big, tall, blue, hermaphroditic alien? Why do you keep saying big, tall? Isn't one of those redundant? Those aliens were... They were just tall. No, they weren't. Those aliens weren't just big. They weren't just tall. They were big tall. No, gender isn't important. It doesn't factor into the average. But then you can't really imagine this person, can you? Okay, I concede. I don't have a perfect image of this person. Satisfied? But I don't think it matters. 
Really? You don't think the gender of a consumer is important? Not in my case. I don't even know why you're so concerned about that right now. I, I thought you were trying to belittle me. Just the word avatar. Sounds like a big, tall, blue alien with ambiguous genitalia. I didn't make up the word, man. That's the way techie, entrepreneurial types talk. They have an argument, an argo, an argot. How do you say that word? You're pathetic. Your mom. Now you're going to insult your own mother. Anyhow, next question. What's my niche? What are the other shows in my niche? That's two questions. <clears throat> True. And for the sake of parallelism, here are two reasons I don't like you. One, go fuck yourself. Two, I haven't got another one. You kiss your mother with that mouth. You think she'll be happy hearing that on your podcast? You know, you... Actually, you're right. I should probably edit that out. Yeah. Niche shows in my niche. It's cultural criticism, I guess. As for the shows, This American Life, obviously. Radio Lab, Invisibilia, Krista Tippett's On Being, pretty much all of those Roman Mars, Radiotopia shows, especially... Oh, you don't know your own limitations, do you? Krista Tippett was given the National Humanities Medal by the President of the United States. What have you ever done? Can I ask you something? Sure. What you got? Why do you sound like the Christian Bale Batman? Or fucking Birdman? I don't know. It's your derivative imagination. What part of your personal experience makes you think you could make any sort of podcast? Much less one of the ones you just listed. I believe in myself. There's a difference between self-esteem and narcissism, or do you not believe that? Yep. Yep what? Yep, you believe that, or yep, that's what I believe? You're avoiding my question. What have you ever done that makes you believe you can produce a podcast? John Lee Dumas didn't have any experience with podcasting when he was getting started, and now he's got hundreds of thousands of listeners. Who's Johnny Dumas? John Lee Dumas. He's got tons of great advice for launching and monetizing your podcast. Never heard of him. What do you mean you've never heard of him? I've heard of him, so you've heard of him too, buddy. Monetizing, huh? So now you think you're going to make money out of this. Isn't that a little tawdry? You know, if you're going to sound like Birdman, shouldn't you be feeding me delusions of grandeur? You're clearly good enough at that yourself. God, I hate you. Yeah, it's pretty obvious you hate yourself. I don't even know why I'm letting you get to me. You're just a conceit, man. You're a means to changing my opening monologue into an opening dialogue. I don't really believe in that whole Cervantes, Borges, Charlie Kaufman brand of transitory self. I don't even think those guys necessarily believed in it. I've read Galen Strassen's book. I know that cells are fugacious and cobwebby. And I know that my mind is modal. I, I get that. I contain fucking multitudes, man. Pardon my French, Walt. But my inner life isn't like this conversation we're having. I'm, it's, it's more unified. Even if I have an inner conflict, it's, it's my inner conflict. I'm the one thinking it all, damn it. I'm not schizophrenic. Are you sure? I'm going to kill you. Suicidal. I'm Aaron Gowan. This is A Million Little Gods. That tone you just heard? This one? 
You'll hear that occasionally in this podcast. I like to think of this thing as a book, and you're listening to the first chapter. The genre is creative nonfiction, and as such, there are sometimes things that need saying that I really can't fit into the main narrative. In print, I would just put these things into a footnote, but there's no such thing as an auditory footnote. Or is there? there okay, we're going to make one, okay? So there are supplemental podcasts in the feed on iTunes and Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. They're not really full episodes. They're, they're footnote podcasts. What are we calling these things, Chris? That's Chris. He produces the show along with me. He also writes and performs some music and designed the logo. He's multi-talented. Anyhow, yeah, footcasts. The fact that the word sounds like something every nine-year-old who ever mislanded a trampoline dunk has had to endure for six weeks is not lost on us, but we're committed to it. It may seem like clickbait, but actually it's, it's, it's clickbait. We're trying to get you to be hooked on our show. But it's, it's also full of intriguing information, and my voice sounds wonky in them like this. So follow the ding and go listen to the first footcast. It's about the title of our show. We'll wait for you. Are you back? Awesome. So as I say, the overarching thesis of this podcast is that you can gain consolation and, if you're lucky, maybe even ennoblement from being comfortable with uncertainty. Each month, we'll be tackling a different subject. This month, the subject is the anxiety of influence. So what comes to mind when I say that phrase? Urban Dictionary has nothing on it, although anxiety and influence each get some love. Genius.com has about 914 annotations on the day I'm recording, but exactly the kind you'd expect if you're familiar with the phrase's origin. So what do you say? Test? Okay. Have you ever heard the phrase, the anxiety of influence? No. What do you think that phrase means? Uh, I don't know. Explain. I can if I explain it to you, then then, then that ruins the the whole effect. Anxiety of influence. What do you think it means? Um, I would, I don't know. I think maybe people are afraid of, of doing what other people do or, or, or doing what they think they should do and not being true to themselves. The anxiety of influence, I suppose, comes down to, even if you take it back to teenagers, uh, things that will influence them and change their behavior so that... The generation before will not understand the generation after, and vice versa. If you could, you're a psychology person, aren't you? Yes. Okay, this is great. Um, would, what, what could you grok from that phrase? Uh, I guess I would say that um, some people fear or have have anxiety <laughs> when they are influencing others or when others are influencing them. That's what I mean. Do you ever feel that way yourself? No, not at all. Never in the slightest. No, no, no. I've been, I guess, teaching but kind of performing for so long that my job is to influence people, influence them into saying something, and then um, having others influence me is something that I accept graciously. All right, so it's definitely not a meme, but I think it's gotten into the language. If it's not immediately present, I think people have a notion of its meaning that doesn't merely come from parsing its component words. But I'm being aloof and coy here. Where does this phrase come from? That's the crux. That's what you all want to know. So here goes. It's the title of a book of literary theory or or poetic theory written in 1971 by Harold Bloom. The central thesis of the book takes the same name, The Anxiety of Influence. In a nutshell, the argument goes that poets have a love-hate relationship with their predecessors. They feel like they find the right turn of phrase or metrical scheme, the right balance of artifice and verisimilitude. 
comment and structure, but it, but at every turn they keep finding John fucking Milton holding his thumb up to his nose, twiddling his fingers in the air. <laughs> You're welcome for the image. It's a bit oversimplified, but you get the gist. And this idea was so puissant that it, it captured a lot of imaginations. The, the phrase Daniel Zahashi of influence was terrifically potent as a phrase. So we could put it in with T.S. Eliot, the dissociation of sensibility or objective correlative. That is phrases which Eliot himself described as having a success astonishing to their author. And, on. and Bloom has one of those there. That's Professor Christopher Ricks. He's Professor of the Humanities and co-director of the Editorial Institute at Boston University. Between 2004 and 2009, he held the esteemed chair of Oxford Professor of Poetry, previously held, among others, by Matthew Arnold and Auden. And he's a freaking huge Bob Dylan nut. In 2002, he published a series of essays that takes as their subject literary inheritance or literary debt of all sorts, illusion and plagiarism and copycatting. And in that book, he takes Bloom to task for basically over-dramatizing what motivates artists, in this case poets, uh, when, they, when they place their art over against the work of their perhaps imposingly brilliant precursors. The argument explicitly in Bloom is a Freudian argument. It's, he refers to it as a Freudian romance, and it wants to link the problems of of writing anew and its relation to previous writing to questions of parricide, basically. Uh, that is, uh, it is an eatable story. You actually, in this rather melodramatic form of relations to predecessors, would like to kill them. It's not just that they uh, stand between, well, they stand between you and the light in the sort of Richard Third way. Now is the winter of our discontent. Rick says the breakaway success that Bloom's book has enjoyed rests with the fact that it answered a need among literary critics who were being inundated with theory in the 1970s for a more dramatic or even heroic alternative. Now, uh, it, if it's Bloom's most influential book, it's partly because it's about influence and it's partly because it's unusual for him in being actually literary theory. I don't think it's very uh, advanced uh, or concatenated as literary theory compared with the things that some of the theorists do. But Bloom has always had a rather uneasy relation to literary theory. Uh, This is nothing like his first book, of course, and he wasn't a literary theorist prior to that. And I don't think his his disillusionment with deconstruction um, is evident and denounced by him. In all kinds of ways, he's a, he's a rather old-fashioned, uh, that's good for me, valuable literary critic and literary historian. I'll try to delineate Bloom's theory at radio-friendly length and with as little English major jargon as possible. As we heard from Professor Ricks, it's a, a Freudian scenario that Bloom describes. Influence, he says in his book, is influenza, an astral disease. The Italian word we use to mean the flu, an outbreak or epidemic of disease, was an appropriation of an old medieval idea that our destinies and our personalities are fixed at birth by the influx of ethereal fluids from the astrological constellations found at the time. The disease Bloom is talking about is Oedipus's disease, the human condition, your lot in life, the sense you have that your inner light, your potential, what you were put on this earth to do, is at odds with your situation.
a poet of genius will find a way to break free from the binds of tradition. Let's take Milton's sonnet, When I Consider How My Light Is Spent. When I consider how my light is spent, ere half my days in this dark world and wide, and that one talent which is death to hide lodged with me useless, though my soul more bent to serve there with my maker and present my true account, lest he returning chide. Doth God exact day labor light denied? I finally ask. But patience to prevent that murmur soon replies, God doth not need either man's work or his own gifts. Who best bear his mild yoke, they serve him best. His state is kingly, thousands at his bidding speed, and post o'er land and ocean without rest. They also serve who only stand and wait. I think that's a perfect poem, and I think that in 2015... I imagine Coleridge thought so in 1800. In the face of such perfection, Bloom claims, the poet who wants to write anew can only forcefully misread a poem and find faults that just aren't really there, at least not according to the received tradition. The new poet is looking for chinks in his predecessor's armor. Bloom calls this creative misprision. His theory consists in a set of six techniques. He calls them revisionary ratios that a poet, either consciously or unconsciously, always carries out in order to vanquish his beloved and hated forebearer. First comes what he calls clean-a-men. It's straightforward. The poet says, here's how that guy said it. I'd say it differently. My way's better. It's a blow to the armor, but it doesn't cut through. Then comes what Bloom calls tessera. In this step, the new poet doesn't just try to say the same thing, only better. The new poet adds more to the idea. He expands on it, as if the forebearer didn't say enough. It's not just a blow. It gets through the chainmail. Third is what Bloom calls kenosis. To be perfectly honest, I'm not quite sure what this really is, but I think it's suggesting some sort of drunken master move. The latecomer poet is self-deprecating about his poetry, and by criticizing his own stuff, he throws some shade by association back at the poet who inspired him, and that frees up some creative room for him to do his own thing. The fourth step is possibly the most important to Bloom. He calls it demonization. In this step, the poet sees the numinous, the transcendent thing that originally inspired the precursor poet and which the precursor poet could not quite capture. This gives the newcomer the chance to try and capture it himself. Here's a quotation Bloom gives to underwrite the idea of demonization from Nietzsche's human, all too human. If in all that he does, he considers the final aimlessness of man, his own activity assumes in his eyes the character of wastefulness but to feel one's self just as much wasted as humanity, and not only as an individual, as we see the single blossom of nature wasted, is a feeling above all other feelings. But who is capable of it? Assuredly only a poet, and poets always know how to console themselves. The fifth step is ascesis, or the purging of the self. This step leads almost inevitably to solipsism as the poet becomes obsessed with her own subjectivity, and finally comes Apophrates or the return of the dead. The latter-day poet has so established himself in his own daemon that now reading the precursor's poem, one might mistake it for the latecomers. And that's it. If you're anything like me, the first word that comes to your mind when you hear about these revisionary ratios is gobbledygook. It's filled with excessive jargon, takes itself too seriously, and offers no close reading of the poetry to back it up. In that way, Bloom's book is totally different from the work of criticism that almost immediately inspired it. And of course, the book 
which the anxiety of influence needs in some way both to acknowledge and to disown, is Walter Jackson Bate, The Burden of the Past and the English Poet, a book which profoundly influences Bloom and which Bloom doesn't in the end really uh, sufficiently acknowledge. He doesn't plagiarize it, he's not an ingrate, um, but the Bate book is actually a much more inaugurative book than Harold Bloom's book. Um, and Bate is a greater scholar both than Bloom uh, and than me and most of the people that you and I know. So that, that, that's sort of part, of part of the story. <laughs> okay, can you hear me? Can you hear me? I can hear you. Can you hear me? I also spoke to yes. Don Cher, editor-in-chief of Poetry Magazine. But so I, I actually, I read both books and I liked Bate's book better and they are they are rather different i mean they're not exactly about the same thing but the, what you're pointing to is obviously the idea which which is something we have from living in a post ts Eliot world that all of the works of literature that are there for us to contend with including those being generated in the present moment and those to come are somehow jostling with each other you know, for position in that, that in effect, there's a kind of great body of work that is always kind of hovering behind us, you know, like a, like the winged chariot or something, but that behind us are all, all these great works and that there's a burden there. We should be clear on what Don means by a post T.S. Eliot world. Eliot, apart from being the author of seminal works of modern poetry, like The Wasteland or The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, or my personal favorite, The Four Quartets, was an influential literary critic. Without a doubt, the critical essay he's most famous for is Tradition and the Individual Talent. He writes that you can only create something artistically new or ingenious by tapping into the body of historical associations we all share culturally. No poet, Eliot writes, no artist of any art, has complete meaning alone. His significance, his appreciation, is the appreciation of his relation to the dead poets and artists. You cannot value him alone. You must set him for contrast and comparison among the dead. And in an essay on the English dramatist Philip Massinger's indebtedness to Shakespeare, Eliot says that one of the surest tests is the way in which a poet borrows. Immature poets imitate. Mature poets steal. Bad poets deface what they take, and good poets make it into something better, or at least something different. The good poet welds his theft into a whole of feeling which is unique, utterly different from that from which it was torn. The bad poet throws it into something which has no cohesion. So Don Scher says that Bloom's theory picks up this good artist, bad artist dichotomy and runs with it, making it a way of understanding art. Um, and this is where Bloom and his other books come in. A kind of struggle, or agon, as, as he's called it. Mm. And I think that idea is, is itself a burden. I think it was such an appealing way to get a handle on things that for a very long time, it, it was very valuable. Um, because it was a way to size up something in a way to more importantly gain perspective yeah which we which we need in other words how do i come to this work well it sits in a sort of context that on the one hand is moving forward but on the other hand has a history behind it that is powerful maybe even overwhelming mm. so i think for a long time this was a pretty good sort of way to diagram uh to diagram literature and Given what I do, which is sort of the work of discovery uh, of new works, of new works, yeah, sure. What I find as a practical matter is that this 
paradigm doesn't help me do anything. A lot of work, uh, you have to look at a lot of new work um, as appearing without necessarily decipherable relationships to what came before. I mean, some work is startlingly new. Yeah. It's not that it's original in the sense that it has no origin. It's quite possible that they don't fit in, which is very telling. Even the romantics with, with, with whom Bloom is so pre has always been so preoccupied. I mean, Wordsworth and Coleridge set out basically uh, uh, you know, to disentangle themselves from the, from the past by creating a diction and poetry that is more... Um, you know, recognizable as day-to-day -day speech. I mean, they didn't really do that, but that's what yeah. they thought they were doing. And so when you look at projects of mammoth, either mammoth importance or, or sort of audacity like those two and many more, what you find is there's not a lot of anxiety about the past. That there are people who are quite willing, Elliot included, to kind of bulldoze the past or, <laughs> okay, or yeah. push through it or push past it or ignore it, pound does this he may make a pact with Whitman uh, and may have had his fights aesthetically with say Browning but the cantos are, are pretty much kind of unaccountable pull down thy vanity thou art a beaten dog beneath the hail a swollen magpie a fitful sun half black half white nor knowst thou wing from tail Pull down thy vanity, how mean thy hate fostered in falsity. Pull down thy vanity, wraith to destroy, niggard in charity. Pull down thy vanity, I say pull down. I mean, that's a kind of archaeology, which is fine, and it's great work for a scholar or interested reader to do, you know, to dig around and find all of the filaments to other things that came before. But really, what that does is causes us to be preoccupied more with the past than the direction that new work is taking us. Uh, and so, so that's something that it seems to me to be a liability. But remember that for Bloom, what he's talking about is a kind of psychological impediment. In other words, right. you have poets, and what they have to decide to do their work is that the poets who came before them sort of went wrong, took the wrong way, and that you know they failed in some way, so that you have an opening to do something. And then this new thing that you do, well, guess what? It becomes part of the tradition. Again, it's such a magnetic and appealing idea. Yeah. But but when you think about it, I, 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 I think if you ask any poet, not that you have to take the poet's word for it, but I don't think that's actually what any poet does. No. I think if a poet or any writer or artist sets out to do it in those terms or following that scheme, you know, everything becomes kind of a kind of a a mess. That music you hear is the cue that you're now listening to a word about our sponsors. But, uh, <laughs> we don't have any sponsors yet. So let's just say that this premiere episode of A Million Little Gods is brought to you by the present Unreal Conditional Sentence. 
We had a sponsor. This is where you'd hear me talking about it. Were there a company that, just as a random example, might sell razors online at a drastically reduced price, lower than the market standard? And if that company should happen to have bought a factory in a certain Teutonic country where I might possibly live, and should that company take advantage of the reputation of the industry in said Teutonic country for manufacturing highly engineered products, and might that company prove to have a proclivity for using podcasts as sponsors, and if it so happened that that said company would find it amusing to hear a podcaster visit the aforementioned factory in the aforementioned Teutonic country and speak to the workers about how the slogan made in aforementioned Teutonic country has such cachet in America, I would be willing to do that. I'm just saying. We're back. A mess. That's what Don Cher called Harold Bloom's scenario for how poets go about writing in his seminal book, The Anxiety of Influence. It's hard to argue with that. And I don't want to. I, I think Don is articulating what the anxiety of influence looks like from the perspective of healthy creativity. When an artist's motor is firing on all cylinders, he can splatter anxiety like a fly on his metaphorical front grill. And I think as a theory for parsing literature, it's, it's just a dead end. But artists are human. They have egos. Like all of us, they compare themselves with their parents, siblings, and peers, both literal and figurative. And I think it's wrong not to consider how this tension manifests itself in the art they create. In that vein, back to Christopher Ricks on how poets of the 17th century dealt with what felt to them like an almost literal debt to their precursors. So some of my arguments with Bloom have to do with the difference between the melodrama of Freudian romance um, and inheritance is always being in some way fraught. It has a lot of freight. All questions of inheritance, my making my will recently or changing my will, any question about inheritance has a lot of freight and is therefore fraught. And that's a human situation, which, of course, 17th century England has no monopoly of. I think all allusion and all, all and a great many literary relations can be seen under the aspect of inheritance. That is not the same as saying it is inheritance. It should be seen under the aspect of inheritance. And that was the one aspect under which I wrote. And there are other figures of speech for allusion. It, all allusion can be seen under the aspect of play, or a game, or we wouldn't call it allusion. Uh, so I didn't think that the, the inheritance lens had a monopoly of valuable lenses with which to look at this. So it is a historical argument. It says in the 17th century, arguments about inheritance, which are everywhere, as the anthropologist, you would tell me about cultures that don't have any investment in inheritance. I'd like to know them. I mean, it would seem to me uh, an immediate, doesn't matter whether it's comedy, doesn't matter whether it's capital. I mean, how and how people inherit what they inherit and why they inherit, it is simply everywhere. It is the stuff of perfectly ordinary daily life, of every family, of every institution, and so on. So it, the historical thing would be, is there a particular, as evil people now say, inflection in the 17th century, which makes the parallel, the ways in which inheritance of property or of money or of a position or of a right, or of a privilege, of a duty, um, something that makes the parallel between that and literary allusion itself 
to be seen under the aspect of inheritance. Is there something particularly 17th century about it? Well, I thought that there was, because I, I cite, you'll remember the historian Rothgar Habakkuk, who unfortunately, when he was knighted, decided to drop the host Rothgar and call himself Sir John Habakkuk. What a pity. But his work on technical term, trustees to preserve contingent remainders. Every culture has to think about how to protect its grandchildren against its children. Every culture thinks about, about that in some way or other. Uh, the 17th century has particular problems about it because of things that led up to the Civil War, that were the Civil War, and that followed from the Civil War, certain terrible intramural quarrels and hatreds within the family. And certainly it's a huge Shakespearean subject, the enmity between brothers. Um, but one of the things that happens is that they, for the first time, worked out the way in which you could protect an inheritance against your immediate heirs, and they're being taken in by, taken over by bad people. Uh, it's a world of distrust. Um, it may be that there was more distrust than was altogether called for, though a good deal of distrust is always called for. To try and sum up <laughs> the, my inordinately long answer, I do think there are not only parallels between the inheritance that is um, making happy play with something that came to you from outside you and had been created and which in a way you're inheriting. Some parallel between that and how people ought to behave in society. Because I'm with those critics of whom F.R. Leavis and perhaps William Empson are the most powerful, the critics who believe there are no such things as literary values. There are only values. There are only values, okay, yeah. I would like poems to be humane and benign and generous because I would like people and institutions and everything to be so. Um, what Bloom identified was something which far, I think, from being, um, as it were, in itself a victory, was in fact the thing over which goodness has to triumph. That is, a good poem is one which does not yield to the envy of a preceding poem. A good poem is one which believes in emulation as not the same thing as competition. Uh, Marvel can say, uh, tis all one to courage high, the emulous or enemy. And there are civil war circumstances, it is true that it is all one, the courage high, the emulous or enemy. Uh, you think of a presidential election in this country at the moment, it doesn't matter whether people are emulating you, they are your enemies in emulating you. There is to be only one candidate for the Democratic Party. Um, it's the triumph of good people and of good works of art that they don't yield to these envies, that they actually manage to establish a distinction, a realized distinction between emulation and envy. Mm. Envy as enemy. It's rather wonderful, the envy and enemy. Tis all one to courage high, the emulous or enemy. Envy is the word that's hovering there. I'm very taken with this idea of inheritance. It seems to me that in spite of the easy case he makes against Bloom for his melodrama of Freudian romance, and all the psychology in Bloom really does seem bloated and absurd, Bricks makes an equally universal psychological argument. And I think it precedes or even supersedes Bloom's argument. Before you can get to the perverse psychological envy that Bloom describes, you have to acknowledge an existential condition. That is, you're thrown into a world that existed before you. 
The world didn't come into existence along with your consciousness. We all spend our childhood coming to grips with this fact. You very much have to make do with the conditions that are given to you. I posit that we all harbor, either consciously or not, the belief that our individual existence is tremendous. And that tremendous thing that each of us is, has a right to bring your talents to fruition. I think we all as individuals deserve that. The story that comes to my mind is Puss in Boots. You remember the story. A poor miller has three sons, and all he leaves behind when he dies is, is the mill, a donkey, and a cat. The eldest son inherits the mill. The second son takes the donkey, and the youngest son gets what was left over. The cat. The youngest son thinks to himself, Great. I'm screwed. Those two can work together, and they'll be fine. Me? I'm stuck with this mangy cat. I can eat him and use his fur to make a hat, but then I have nothing left after that. But of course the cat turns out to have been the best portion of all. He's creative and witty and lends the youngest son a life as a wealthy prince. The son should have been grateful for what he'd inherited. But of course he couldn't have known how valuable Puss would turn out to be. As Hegel says, our autonomy, our sense of self, is contingent upon knowing that our property will be present from one day to the next. Otherwise, our plans are all for naught. That's why we have property. That's why stealing is wrong. That's why the right of inheritance must be protected. The, the greatest comment on the relation of literature to politics is William Empson on Gray's elegy, and full many a flower is born to blush unseen and waste its sweetness on the desert air. And Empson says, this is a justification of the political system at the time. You don't have a career open to talents. Uh, if there is somebody with the genius of Milton, he doesn't have to be mute and inglorious. Give him a proper education. Then Empson immediately adds, you'll remember, but this is not really a political point because some such thing would be true of any society you can imagine. So it's the tension between saying there are indeed political things and there are things where it doesn't make sense to political because you cannot imagine a society of which this is not true, some such thing. So the relation of what one owns to what one is, it is ubiquitous. It may be taking a different form at the moment, the relation of property to one's own. I, I don't know what there is about the present situation. I love it when Dylan sings about objects and material things and goes on immediately to say, I never was impressed. She thought they were successful. He thought they were blessed. With objects and material things, but I never was impressed. And when it all came crashing down, I became withdrawn. The only thing I knew how to do was... Um, but it's true that Dylan in his own life at certain times has wished to have an onion dome retreat in California where he's not going to be troubled by people and so on. So the contradictions between the life that one most respects and the life that one is necessarily forced to, to lead and live, all those things are around all the time. I don't know what there is at the moment. To answer that question, I spoke to someone whose voice will be familiar to you if you're a fan of art and culture podcasts. Stephen Metcalf is critic at large and one of the hosts of the Slate Culture Gap Fest. I'm an avid listener to that show. Their subject matter can occasionally be highbrow, but it's mostly cultural items. TV episodes, articles, newly released movies or albums. 
things that are giving the public a free zone of excitement on any given week. All three of the hosts are highly articulate, and none of them shies away from making associations between so-called low and high culture. Over the last two years, I'd noticed a thesis that Stephen would occasionally articulate on the show. While discussing movies, essays, and TV shows, he'd keep coming back to a sense of forestalled grandiosity that he sees as pervading contemporary culture. I got the sense that he was on the same trail as I was. That is, his pervasive forestalled grandiosity is the anxiety of influence. At the beginning of our conversation, we gravitated toward the Coen Brothers movie Inside Lewin Davis. It felt like a good proxy for all the works that seemed to be dealing with this theme. So I will say that the, in, the movie Inside Lewin Davis does come back to me more. It repeats on me, you know, like a like a hot dog, but not in a bad way. And and there is something about that movie. I mean, he, that movie is, you know, it's a hundred percent consciously about someone whose sense of personal grandiosity has not been ratified by the world. And that means that he lives in a kind of personal hell, and then he tries to distribute that hellishness among the people in his intimate circle, and they find him tiresome. And as far as I remember, nobody in the movie shares his own sense of his genius or destiny. And the force hovering over the entire movie is the impending genius and and the about to be radically unforestalled genius of Bob Dylan. And the movie seemed to me at the time, and on, on reflection still seems to me to be about the difference between talent and genius and that in a weird way talent is a kind of curse uh, especially talent without genius is a is a is a kind of curse because if you think about it you know even just thinking about it autobiographically think about the number of people you've met in your life especially early on who could bedazzle you on a piano or with a guitar or with a paintbrush or a pencil or with a sentence and you just thought, I'd do anything for that talent, but for whom that talent became a kind of self-fashioned prison because it really didn't connect up to genius. And genius is related sometimes to talent, though sometimes oddly or tangentially or unexpectedly. And genius has something more to do with the alignment of talent with something completely unique and intrinsic to your own personality. And that unique or intrinsic thing being able to express itself in a medium and the medium almost sometimes seems incidental i mean i hesitate to say that because because it never is i mean at the end of the day bob dylan is a guy with acoustic guitar you can't get around it i mean he he, he's not making paintings he's making folk songs and then then the third thing which is really the devilish thing which is the ability of that to unite up to some latent expectation in the world that the world wasn't wasn't aware of until you made those sounds and so the haunting thing about that movie is the image at the end of bob dylan getting on stage and doing a song that seals off hermetically lewin davis's universe forever in the world of talent and repetition i mean the movie's very much about the need to repeat eternally as a kind of damnation that is transcended only when you discover your genius I asked him whether I was right to understand him as saying that this is something like a universal condition now in our present time. I mean, we grow up blitzed by media images of hyper-success. We also consume those images by and large alone. The sense of being isolated or stranded in one's own circumstances or being is really is really pervasive. And there are a couple of different ways out, and one is through world-building and, and intimacy on a smaller scale— and that seems to me very real and very admirable. And the other is via triumph and is, to, is, is entering the world of hyper triumph and, you know, becoming one of the images on the screen. 
And uh, I think what's insidious about the way that equation is set up is that the latter makes the former feel like uh, being a loser. And so a lot of people, I mean, I, I'm, you know, I'm speaking about me as much as anybody else, but I mean, I, in my life, have been tempted to wait for the ultimate triumph that catapults me out of everything that's sort of sorry and stranded about my existence, as opposed to, you know, building a world of, of reality and intimacy. And what changed me forever was just having kids, right? I mean, you just can't, to impose that on children, to impose your own absence because of some longing for something that in itself is probably fairly unreal, to impose that absence on your kids is a, is a kind of sin. I have to shift gears for a bit. I've been, I've been avoiding doing this for multiple reasons, but mostly it's just that I'm um, embarrassed and a bit ashamed. But I've got to do this thing, otherwise the rest of the podcast is just an auditory dog and pony show. Everything hinges on it. I need to be really judicious with my words. I don't want to say anything hurtful. Ironically or appropriately, the focus has to be on on me. So, I came to Germany ten years ago to study, ostensibly. Really, I came to Germany to escape the pain of a divorce. That's water under the bridge now. It doesn't really trouble me anymore, though my ex-wife and I have been together since we were teenagers. But um, about nine years ago, I met another girl, a German girl. She was beautiful and kind. There was a, a fierceness that kept her distant from other people. She seemed... She seemed to need to protect herself, but she was also fiercely loving and devoted. And behind that, that fierceness was vulnerability. Um, and I just adored her. And we got married in 2009. It was a wonderful life. Our relationship made up for the difficulty I had, not really finding a job that paid well and felt fulfilling. In 2010, our, our son was born. And my connection to him was just immediate. I poured all of my energies into being the greatest father possible. I thought if lucky breaks didn't come my way, career-wise, I could make up for it by spending all, of, all the more time with my son. But, um, of course, you, you, want, you want your child to respect you. And you want to respect yourself. So I divided my energies. I felt like I had to be there for my son frequently to do small activities with him, read to him at least an hour a day. But I also tried to skip resting and spending time with others so that I could teach part-time at a boarding school. Then I began lecturing at the university and then translating. All of these jobs were interesting in their own right, and, and we were always able to make ends meet. But I, I couldn't parlay any of them into a permanent position. I was restless. I, I felt like I needed to create something. I... Um, I wanted to break out. I feel ashamed to admit that I wasn't satisfied with my beautiful family. I told myself I ought to be, and I accepted my lot in life. But I've, I've never felt like I lived up to my potential. I don't know what that even matters. I don't know why I can't be satisfied. In 2013, our daughter was born... 
Like her brother, she's a remarkable little soul, but she's different. Where he's sensitive and creative, but persevering, she's tenacious and, and can't be phased. That's going to take her far in life, I'm sure, but it's also difficult to deal with if you have to take care of her. You can't leave her alone for more than a second because she's bound to destroy something. I, I live in constant fear that she's going to get hurt on my watch. And for her first 19 months, she would vomit every night before she went to sleep. My wife worked the night shifts often, and I spent the nights with the children. It was a massive burden, and, and that rested squarely on the shoulders of our marriage. Um, in January of this year, she told me she'd found a, another man and um, wanted to end our relationship immediately. So in March, she moved out. And we found a, a way to make it work with the kids. I take them about half the time. I miss them frightfully when they're not around. Before she left, my wife and I said some cruel things to each other, things I think we both regret. I won't repeat what insults I said to her, but let it be known that um, they were every bit as cruel. About me, she said, Feist du was, du bist ein Opfer, und du warst schon immer ein Opfer dein Leben lang. That means, you know what? You're a loser, and you've been a loser your whole life. I know she said that to hurt me. Um, in, the, in the heat of the moment, she said that to hurt me, and I, and I know that she doesn't believe it, but she believes it a little bit. And in some way, she's right. But I'm working on it. We were lost, set adrift On a red clay unmarked road With nothing except we could hold Free of every debt we owed We left behind a sordid past And all we had held dear We dropped Sails and climbed the mast, made a promise in the mirror, feeling so inspired. My sense is that there is a universal longing for recognition that precedes, completely precedes, uh, not only modern mass media, um, the apparatus of the modern mass media, it precedes capitalistic society, it precedes the market society. Human beings, as soon as we became social animals, as soon as the medium through which we related to the world was societal, 
we looked for, and maybe even before that, I think we looked for recognition in others. And that, to me, is a profoundly healthy desire, which is to do or be something meaningful to others on whatever scale. But that scale can be larger than to your kids or your family without also having to be the rock star apotheosis, that there's this entire middle zone of recognition that I find intrinsically admirable, but under constant siege, right? So it could be, I taught at a prep school, but I was freaking brilliant at it. And I educated a generation of kids in Hamlet and King Lear. And I am recognized for that among the, you know, maybe it's 10,000 at most people that I've influenced, or maybe it's half that or twice that, whatever it is. But by by the administration of that school and by the institutional memory of that school and by the thousands of kids that I've educated, I am recognized. And, and there's nothing deranged about taking on a kind of existence within yourself by seeing, by recognizing their recognition. But to have done instead of not doing, this is not vanity. To have with decency knocked that a blunt should open, to have gathered from the air of live tradition or from a fine old eye the unconquered flame. This is not vanity. Here error is all in the not done, all in the diffidence that faltered. There was one last person I just had to talk to in this episode. The juxtaposition of rock star apotheosis and healthy recognition among your peers seems complicated for him, as he's on the cusp, if not of being a rock star, then at least of being a highly recognizable musician. Christopher Paul Stelling's career has been gaining a lot of momentum lately. Watch his recent performance on NPR's Tiny Desk, and you tell me if you don't think he's some kind of genius. But there's something grounded about the guy. For him, making emotionally raw, technically complex music just seems to be his way of getting healthy recognition. It's nice that people are, are, it's nice that I can make music and then there's a small, I mean, very small, relatively speaking, minuscule amount of, amount of people that, that will appreciate it. But it's, I enjoy the process. I enjoy everything from playing to writing to recording to booking tours to traveling to you know, I enjoy it uh, we're like people maybe of of our generation of our like economic uh, situation you know everybody everybody wants to be an artist everybody wants to express themselves but the end game is is just because it feels good to be doing something mm. I mean or the end, maybe the end game of of creativity is just to inspire other people to uh, to be fearless in their own pursuit of of self uh, self acknowledgement. I mean, you know, it, it takes a lot of guts to be able to to say, "Hey, I made this, and I should share it." You can get Chris's album wherever you buy music. He'll be back on tour in the U.S. next month. If you enjoyed our show, do us a favor and subscribe on iTunes and write us a review. A million Little Gods is me, Aaron Gowan, along with Chris Lewis. Time 
Music and editorial help by Todd Harrop. Our theme song is by the band Recycled. You can find us online at amillionlittlegods.com. Sign up for our newsletter. You can follow us on Twitter, too, at AMLG Podcast, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash a million little gods. And we